Today's episode looks at two stories in the 1910s that both end up in the same place. The first involves an early Chicago murder that helped develop fingerprints as a way to identify criminals. The second was a crime of opportunity that resulted in the death of an innocent farmer and the sentencing of four men and two teenage boys. Today we're discussing five on the scaffold, the murders of Clarence D. Hiller and Fred Golzell. I'm Tommy Henry, and this is the Chicago History Podcast. This story deals with robbery, murder, capital punishment, and other adult themes, and is not recommended for delicate ears. Listener discretion is advised. In the early hours of Monday, September 19, 1910, Clarence D. Hiller, chief clerk of the local freight department of the Rock Island Railroad, was asleep next to his wife Linda at their home at 1837 West 104th Street in the Washington Heights neighborhood on the city's south side. Although there had been break-ins in the neighborhood, including an attempted break-in at the Hiller house a few weeks prior to this evening, Mr. and Mrs. Hiller and their four children slept soundly. Mr. Hiller's slumber was interrupted by the sound of his 13-year-old daughter Florence's screams. Someone was in the house. Someone was in his daughter's room. Clarence Hiller raced to the darkened hallway and came face to face with the stranger that had terrified his daughter. The two men grappled, struggling with each other at the top of the stairs until one of them lost their footing and they both tumbled to the bottom of the staircase. The battle continued until the intruder produced a gun and shot Clarence Hiller three times in quick succession. Hiller groaned in pain and then grew quiet as the life left his body. Mrs. Hiller screamed out the window from the second floor. Neighbors came running. They found the front door wide open with Clarence Hiller dead in the front hallway. The intruder had escaped. Less than an hour later, police stopped an out-of-breath man at 103rd Street and Vincennes Road, not quite a mile from the site of the murder. He gave his name as William Jones, and his address is 577 South State Street, nearly 13 miles north. His torn coat showed signs of blood, and when police frisked the man, they found a loaded gun. The man was quickly arrested and brought to the South Englewood Police Station. Police soon discovered that the man claiming to be William Jones was actually Thomas Jennings. Jennings was a known burglar who had served two terms at Joliet Prison. He was first paroled in 1908 after serving two years, but the following year he was again convicted of burglary and sent back. Jennings' latest parole was a month before the Hiller shooting. That timeline also matched a series of robberies in that area. Back at the Hiller house, investigators began to piece together the incident. Of note, on a recently painted railing on the back porch, still sticky to the touch, there were the distinct impressions of the fingers of someone's left hand. The railing was sawed from its support and brought in for closer examination. 
I need to stop here for a moment to mention that the murdered man, Clarence Hiller, was white and Thomas Jennings was black. This was made abundantly clear in every article I found on the story, in which most referred to Jennings as the Negro burglar or the accused Negro. Many wrote of the man as Thomas Jennings, then his age, then Negro. One article changed it up a little and after referring to him as Negro, finally added colored in parentheses after his name. Racially biased media coverage has been prevalent as long as there has been media coverage. The Jennings case is yet another example. Where was I? In addition, eyewitness statements from Hiller's daughter and others who claimed Jennings was the man they saw leaving their burgled homes Fingerprint experts would later testify that there were 33 points of similarity on the first three fingers on Jennings' left hand and the prints left on the railing, and also a matching thumbprint. In a December 22, 1911 Chicago Tribune story titled, Fingerprints as Evidence Upheld, Illinois Supreme Court First to Say Flesh Impressions Are Admissible, Captain Michael Evans, head of the Identification Bureau, swore in court during the Jennings trial that the fingerprint on the railing was made by Jennings. The defense team, led by a prominent African-American attorney named William Anderson, tried to disprove it. Regarding whether the print belonged to Jennings, Captain Evans was asked by the defense attorney, How do you know? His response, I know because the print on the fence is exactly like a print I made of Jennings' thumb. You have great confidence in fingerprints for the purposes of identification, Evans was then asked. His answer, I have. The attorney for the defense continued, Suppose that I were to plant my thumb on this piece of white paper. Could you make a print from this paper that would prove it was my thumb that had been pressed upon it? Captain Evans responded confidently, I could. The lawyer continued, asking Evans to go ahead and do it. The attorney pressed his thumb on the page. Evans took a box containing powder from his pocket. Evans then sprinkled the powder over the paper. He then held the paper horizontally and blew the excess powder away. What remained was a mark on the paper that unmistakably matched the lawyer's thumb. The jury was reportedly impressed, and late in the afternoon on Thursday, November 10th, 1910, fewer than two months since the murder of Clarence Hiller, Jurors found Thomas Jennings guilty of murder. So confident of Jennings' guilt, the first juror's ballot resulted in a unanimous vote for conviction, with 11 of the all-male jury demanding the death penalty. By the third ballot, the last holdout gave in, and the death sentence was made unanimous. While fingerprint analysis had been used in other parts of the world before this, the Hiller murder and the Jennings case was the first conviction using fingerprint evidence in a criminal trial in the United States. Jennings' defense team mounted appeals claiming this new science was unproven and should not have been considered in the trial, but after more than a year in the appeals process, on December 21, 1911, the Illinois Supreme Court upheld the conviction in the People v. Jennings, affirming his sentence would be carried out. Jennings' attorney, William Anderson, and anti-lynching activist Ida Wells Barnett appealed to Illinois Governor Charles S. Deneen, for clemency, 
but he could not be swayed. Fred W. Goulzow Jr. was a 23-year-old farmer with land about four miles outside Morton Grove, roughly 20 miles from downtown Chicago. He was married to Bertha, and the two had welcomed a daughter, Amanda, in August of 1911. At 5 p.m. on Friday, October 20th, 1911, Goulzow headed south to the city with a wagon load full of vegetables to sell at the Haymarket on Randolph Street the following morning. What Goulzow had no way of knowing was that up ahead was a group of toughs looking for a quick way to make some money. Hiding off to the side of Lincoln Avenue, the major route into the city from the north at the time, the group of would-be criminals saw a rough-looking farmer approaching in his wagon. Fearful the farmer might put up a fight, they did not approach him. Ten minutes later, a wagon with two men ambled down Lincoln, but the group of six avoided them as well. A third wagon approached, this one being driven by Fred Golzow. Frank Keita, Leo Somchowski, and Thomas Schultz stopped the horses, while Frank Shablowski and Philip Sommerling pointed pistols at the driver. 16-year-old Frank Keita reportedly climbed onto the produce wagon and said, If you don't get down, I'll cut your heart out. A frightened Frank Goulzow stepped down from the wagon, pleading, I have a wife and children. Take my money, but let me go. In response, he was hit by a club so hard that the impact fractured his skull. The assault continued. One of the assailants produced a knife. After dumping Goulzow's lifeless body in a shallow hole on the side of the road out of view of passers-by, his killers washed their bloodied hands in a drainage canal. They then climbed aboard the murdered man's wagon, driving it into town. That night, they stopped at the Haymarket to rest, and by morning, Leo Summer and the two Shablowski brothers left with the wagon, driving to the auction grounds of Abe Klee & Son, 982 Center Avenue. The killers demanded $200 for the horses, about $6,300 in today's money. Klee, the owner of the auction house, thought the horses were worth it, but tried to get a better deal. The sellers readily dropped their asking price to $150, then $100, and finally $85. Sensing something was amiss and that the horses might be stolen, Klee excused himself and called the police, who arrived quickly and arrested the three. As Saturday evening descended upon the Goulzow house, Fred Goulzow's wife Bertha became concerned Fred had not returned from the farmer's market so she called the Cook County Truck Gardeners and Farmers Association. Workers there called the authorities to report their missing member. In Ewald Shablowski's pocket, police found Fred Golzow's Farmers Association card. Shablowski was wearing the boots that had Fred Golzow's name written inside of them. When the call came in from the farmer's group about their missing member, Chicago Police Inspector Healy pressed the men for answers. Ewald Shablowski was the first to confess, claiming that while he took part in the robbery, he did not murder Fred Golzow. My brother, Shablowski said, struck the first blow. He hit him with an elm club. Then Schultz stabbed him. I only stood by. In fact, I tried to get them to let up. 
Two days after the murder, Frank Shablowski led investigators to where the criminals had left Frank Golzo's body in a wooded area about 300 feet away from the intersection of Lincoln and Polina. Golzo's skull had been crushed from the blow, and six knife wounds were visible in his neck and body. The two Shablowski brothers, Philip Sommerling, Thomas Schultz, Leo Shamowski, and Frank Keita, six in total, were indicted for murder. Less than a month later, their trial began. On the way to the courthouse, the defendants were hissed and jeered at by their fellow prisoners. According to news reports, even hardened criminals resented association with these murderers. And as the six walked from their cells, shouts of string them up and hang them came from every part of the prison. On November 28, 1911, just 38 days after Fred Goulzow's murder, a verdict was reached by a jury that deliberated for just two and a half hours. Guilty. Sentenced to hang were Ewald and Frank Shablowski, Philip Summerling, and Thomas Schultz. Leo Shamowski and Frank Keto, both 16, were also convicted and sentenced to life imprisonment. The headline in the Chicago Tribune the next day read, Four must hang, two given life in speedy trial. Court sets new record in quick justice for slayers of truck farmer. Nineteen twelve's New Year saw a surprise concert held in the chapel for the 600 prisoners at the Cook County Jail, including six sentenced to be hanged, including Thomas Jennings and the four convicted in the killing of farmer Fred Goulzow. The sixth, a woman named Mrs. Louise Vermilia, who was under indictment for the murder of a policeman and suspected poisoning of several others with arsenic, was unable to attend after a suicide attempt. Four members of the Chicago Grand Opera Company sang selections in English, French, and Italian, and Carlo Baroni, a local baritone, sang comic Italian songs. According to an article in Chicago's Inner Ocean newspaper, there were many Italians among the prisoners who loudly applauded the songs. Sitting on the bench at the front of the chapel were the four murderers of Fred Goulzow. Next to the four men sat Thomas Jennings, the man convicted of killing Clarence Hiller. According to reports, the five men laughed heartily at the comic selections and applauded with great enthusiasm at hearing the grand opera selections, selections they were hearing for the first time in their lives and likely their last. Five weeks later, on Sunday, February 11th, 1912, the distinct noise of hammers hitting nails could be heard echoing down the hallways of the Cook County Jail, sounds caused by carpenters building the scaffolding, upon which the killer of Clarence Hiller and the murderers of Fred Goulzow would hang. Quick note, the former Cook County Criminal Courthouse was located on the northwest corner of Hubbard Street and Dearborn. The criminal courts left the 54 West Hubbard Street address for its current location at 26th and California in 1929, and the building was subsequently occupied by the Chicago Board of Health and various other city agencies. It is now known as Courthouse Place and houses offices. 
The former Cook County Criminal Courthouse building on Hubbard was listed on the National Register of Historic Places on November 13, 1984, and later designated a Chicago landmark on June 9, 1993. The old Cook County Jail was just north of the court's building on the southwest corner of Illinois and Dearborn, now the site of a fire station. According to the Encyclopedia of Chicago, during its time in use from 1859 until 1928, 101 men were hanged at the old jail. No women. In 1928, the method of executing those sentenced to death was changed to electrocution. Leading up to the day of execution, Frank Shablowski seemed unable or unwilling to accept his fate, declaring, quote, I don't believe any of us will be hanged. The governor will pardon us at the last minute, I am sure. The others were reportedly not as confident. Philip Summerling seemed to feel the gravity of his actions, saying... I have a wife and baby at home, and now they've got to suffer too for what I did. I know that I'm a bad man, but... But... Summerling began to weep, never finishing that thought. Ewald Shablowski expressed gratitude for Julia Klein, his 18-year-old sweetheart, who had taken every opportunity to visit him in prison. She also planned to go before the governor to ask that Ewald Shablowski's sentence be commuted to life imprisonment. Quote, I never knew she was such a girl, Ewald said. She's sticking with me even in this. God, if only I could... His sentence was also left unfinished. Chicago's Inner Ocean newspaper reported that Sheriff Michael Zimmer had received 200 requests in the previous two weeks by those seeking permission to see the upcoming hangings, and new ones were coming in 12 per day. Quote, I'm not going to permit anybody to see these hangings except those persons the law provides shall be there, Sheriff Zimmer claimed. The only persons who will be permitted to be present are the judges of the courts of the county, the clerks of the various courts, the state's attorney, a jury of 14, and representatives of the press. Ewald Shablowski wrote to the widow of Fred Goulzow the night before he was due to hang. The letter read, I must die tomorrow for the murder of your husband and the father of your child. I wish to God I had never done it, and I ask you to forgive me, if you can, for what I did. I had a fair trial. My lawyer did what he could, and the assistant state's attorney treated me fairly. I'm guilty, and before death, I ask your forgiveness for the great wrong I did. God knows that if I could live, I would spend my whole life in trying to do for you and your child what I ought to do. Each of those convicted in the killing of Fred Goulzow was given a Bible and a crucifix, which each promised to hold in their hand until the end. The prison chaplain, Father O'Brien, planned to spend the night before the execution with the men and would be there to walk each from the cell to their deaths. With appeals exhausted and the chance of a last-minute pardon slim, the trip to the scaffold was certain, with the killers of farmer Fred Goulzow scheduled to start around 10 a.m., as for who of the four would be the first to feel the news, it was left up to them to decide. The group decided Ewald Shablowski should leave the proceeding. Ewald's younger brother Frank reportedly whispered to him, It will be better to go first. Ewald Shablowski, then 24 years old, was hanged just after 10 a.m. on the morning of February 16, 1912, followed by his brother Frank, 21 years old. Philip Summerling, 34, and Frank Schultz, 19, followed soon after. 
all four of the men dead within the hour. The last to be hanged that day, the most hangings performed in one day in Chicago, was Thomas Jennings. The bodies of Fred Gulzal's killers were brought to an undertaker on Noble Street. Police had to be stationed outside to keep the morbid crowds from forcing their way inside to see the faces of the hanged men. Only relatives and those closest to men were permitted to view the bodies. Funeral services for the four men were held at St. Stanislaus Church with Father Repinecki officiating. Frank and Ewald Shablowski, Philip Summerling, and Fred Schultz, all party to the killing of Fred Golzow, were later buried in one plot at St. Adelbert Cemetery. According to the Illinois Statewide Death Index, Thomas Jennings was 29 at the time of his death. Various African-American churches raised money to have Thomas Jennings buried, reportedly at Mount Carmel Cemetery in Hillside, Illinois. Even though hanging stopped in Chicago after the late 1920s, the gallows were reportedly stored in the basement well into the 1990s because of one man, Terrible Tommy O'Connor. O'Connor was sentenced to death in 1921 for killing a police detective, but he escaped from jail four days before his scheduled execution. O'Connor eluded capture, but as his original sentence was for him to be hanged, the courts kept the gallows around until a judge in the 1990s finally decided it was unlikely they would ever be used on O'Connor, and they were dismantled. O'Connor was never seen again. listening to today's episode about the murders of Clarence Hiller and Fred Goulzow and the fate of their killers. This episode was researched, written, recorded, and edited by me, Tommy Henry. If you want to help out the podcast, please like, rate, and review the podcast and tell a friend. It really does help us get the word out to fans of Chicago history. Also, give us a follow on those social media sites. The show is pretty easy to find, and I do post much of the content from these episodes there. That original art for the Chicago History Podcast used on the social media pages was created by John K. Schneider. As always, Johnny, top-notch. He can be found at angeleyesartjks on Instagram or via email at angeleyesartjks at gmail.com. I will be back soon with more stories from Chicago's history. Until then, get out and explore when possible, learn more about whatever city you live in, and stay safe. <laughs>